You're listening to the New Story Podcast from New Story Church in Kansas City. To learn more about New Story Church, visit our website at www.newstory.church. Thank you, Kristen. <clears throat> Good morning, everybody. Wonderful to see your faces. Good to be with you this morning. Um, I want to uh, kind of do a couple um, housekeeping items up front, if that's okay. Uh, first thing, last week, uh, well, let me back up. Um, if you're new to the New Story family, um, or, or maybe aren't a part, just kind of a J- New Story adjacent, we may say, um, if you've been around, you, you may know that uh, our lead pastor moved to New York um, just a, a few months ago, and uh, so we're kind of in a season of transition right now. And um, if you go out into the foyer on that TV out there, you'll see what our next steps are as we look to have uh, someone else join us in leadership here. But last week, we had kind of the culmination of our first step, which was the, um, the Constitution. Uh, we revised our Constitution. You may not know churches have a Constitution, not similar to a Declaration of Independence or like the, the American Constitution. Get that out of your mind. This is just kind of our bylaws and how we operate, what we believe, things like that. We're just revising some of that from 1954 when it was first written. And uh, I, guys, I've been around churches. Uh, I, I'm only 33, but I've been in kind of leadership adjacent for uh, 15 years in churches. And I don't know that I've ever seen um, a 100% vote on anything. Um, and that, that brought so much joy to my heart. We've been praying unity for this body. And last week with a 100% vote, we voted to accept the Constitution as revived moving forward. And so guys, I'm proud of you. Thank you um, for asking your questions. Thank you for being involved in the process and giving me and Dennis grace as we walk through this. Uh, I, I can't wait to see what's coming next if this was the starting point. So, um, but on that note, what is coming next is you can, if you're a part, if you're an owner at News Story, uh, probably tomorrow or early on Tuesday, you're going to receive an email. So check your stinking emails. And uh, mo- tomorrow, you're going to receive an email about deacon nominations. And it'll have some information on that and what that means. Maybe you haven't been around church. Maybe you don't know what a deacon is or a nomination of a deacon is. Hopefully, that'll have some information for you on that um, and be able to submit any nominations that you have. Um, we're, we're looking forward to how God is going to even use this, this group of, of men and women, these deacons at New Story, as, uh, for our future and help you know, care, for, care for this body here. So anyway, that's just the housekeeping items. Again, want to say thank you. Uh, it, it has been um, a pleasure. Um, and, and last week, sitting, sitting up here, um, looking out at all the owners of New Story, knowing it was 100% unanimous, it was, it was super cool. So um, I'll tout that all day long. That was awesome. Um, and uh, last, last thing on that. I want to tell you how encouraging that would be to an incoming pastor if they're going to join a church and we can say, hey, six months ago, or not even six months ago, whatever, um, a few months ago, we um, voted as a church body and accepted a new constitution unanimously. Do you know how comforting that is for a a leader coming into a congregation? It's incredible. So um, I'm looking forward to that. But uh, nevertheless, I want to get us into today because, again, as always, we have a lot of work to do in our series um, of Nehemiah, as you can tell, if you didn't know, it's where we were going. It should be pretty clear now um, that that's where we're headed. Um, but two, week, two weeks ago, I think it was two weeks ago, um, on Monday night, my small group meets on Monday nights, and uh, we gathered for a time of food, and um, it, it, those are some of my favorite times. We, we just come together and uh, just kind of relational night in our small groups. Uh, many small groups that kicked off started that way, um, and I love that. Ours start off, so our, our group is, um, that I lead with the Graysons, if you don't know Isaac and Jennifer Grayson, you should, um, what, the group I lead with them is uh, definitely smaller than this room, but it's a large small group, 
um, and I'm thankful to be a part of it. But with a larger small group and young families, you have a lot of what? Kids. You have a lot of, we have a lot of kids that are there. And if you've ever been in the gathering room where we were, it is an asylum of nothing but brick walls. And when there's a lot of kids running around a table like a hurricane, um, it gets very loud in there. And so we sat there. We, we, had, we had a wonderful time. Um, and it's, it's really interesting to watch these kids in their different stages. We had, we had little, little, little ones that are just kind of walking around like drunkards, you know, kind of head leaning. You, you, know, you know how they walk. Um, and uh, that, that's always interesting. So you've got to like save them and save their head from hitting off stuff. And then you have the two-year-old that's, that's trying to tell you something very loudly and passionately, but you need the mom and dad uh, you know, to, to come and, and explain what this foreign language is um, that they're speaking. And isn't that funny that parents always know exactly what it is that their kid just said when, it, when it's gibberish? I think it's fascinating. Um, so we had, we had that, and then we had some, some older kids as they're just kind of running, playing tag, or I don't know, they were screaming, I don't know what they were doing, they were running around the table, and um, you, you, have, you have the older ones that are, that are like gazelles amongst legless creatures as they're prancing about around the table without an issue. Um, it, it's just really cool to see these kids in their different stages of, of development and, um, and kind of the curiosity that goes along with that. Um, and so we, we sat there, we ate, um, okay. Uh, we, we talked loudly and a lot and disciplined a little. Um, it was a really good time. Um, but like I said, it was neat to see the different stages of development and where those kids are at, how they interact. Um, and what I, what I found um, interesting about that is, is not, not only is the littlest one, I think Landon's the littlest one, Ashley and Micah Berry's. Uh, Landon, um, he may not even be that tall, but the littlest, the littlest one, um, he, you know, from there on up to, to me or anyone that's older than me in our, our group, we're all still in development, the, the, the process we call maturity. Now, there's physical maturity, and then there's, there's something different that we're going to talk about a little bit today. Because um, what, what I know to be true is that we're all in a process of maturing. It doesn't matter how um, uh, aged of a vintage nice wine you may be, you're still maturing as you get older. You should be still maturing as you get older. And what I also know to be true is that maturity that we talk about, yes, there's physical maturity, but then there's something different. When we talk about maturity as adults, we're talking about something that has nothing to do with age, if we're honest, and very, uh, very little to do with knowledge, but has everything to do with wisdom, which is knowing how to apply the knowledge that we have. Because you can be as smart as the day is long, but if you don't know how to apply that, or actually you can know everything there is about gravity, but if you don't take that into consideration when you walk off the edge of the stage, you're, it's not going to go up. Wisdom is applied knowledge, knowing what to do. That's what maturity has to do with. And this is why we can have very physically old um, believers, if we're going to take this into the spiritual, kind of spiritual walk, uh, we can have very physically old believers that are still babies spiritually and very much young believers, very mature young believers that are, are walking with wisdom and setting an example like Timothy talks about. See, what, what we see happen within our, our bodies physically lines up in parallels with what happens in us spiritually. The hard part is, though, most of us, most of the time, you grow spiritually like you grow physically in that you can't see it. You don't watch yourself grow. Like with kids, for example, um, you, don't, you don't watch them grow. So, randomly, one day, they come down the stairs, and they hit their head on the top of the stairs, and their toes are poking out their shoes, and they're wearing high waters. And you're like, how did this happen? 
Um, maybe that's just my story of what happened. Um, but th- whatever your development may be, you see your kid, you, you stack them up next to the, you know, if you have a, where you mark their height, you see, wow, how did, how did that happen? Like even my students that I have on Wednesdays, I'm the student pastor here, I work with our students, and, and um, I, I see pictures of them just from like six months ago, and I'm like, how did this happen? You're becoming a, a, a person, a, like a, a, an adult person. It's, it's insane to watch. But you don't watch your kids grow. Um, it just kind of happens. Spiritual growth is similar in that you don't necessarily see yourself grow. But there are some ways in which we can look at ourselves to judge whether we're maturing or, if we're honest, if we're developing spiritual developmental issues. Now, right now, again, we're in a series in Nehemiah. And uh, I'm not going to do kind of a, a long review of our timeline that we've been going through, uh, we've been going back to. Um, please take advantage of the resources that are out in the foyer. We have that timeline out there. Maybe take a picture of it, take one of the handouts home. Um, or even better, go listen to um, the messages from the last couple of weeks to, to catch you up. Um, but please, please do that. But one of the reasons I wanted to teach through this book, excuse me. <coughs> wow, that was intense. Um, <laughs> just like the music earlier. We're full of surprises to keep you guys awake today. Um, One of the reasons I wanted to teach through this book, as I was talking with Dennis about kind of where we were going to head, um, is that in this book, I believe there are some building blocks for Christian development. In the first few verses, we see Nehemiah's kind of heart in in verse verse 4. And I'll I'll have you turn to Nehemiah 2 in just a second. You can go ahead and get ahead of it if you want to. But um, we see in the first couple verses kind of this this heart of empathy and compassion. As it says, he was moved to to, uh, fasting and and prayer and and mourning. Like we see this heart of empathy and compassion. He hears about the state of Jerusalem. And um, that's God's expectation on us as followers of Jesus to have empathy and compassion for our brothers and sisters, our other human beings that are, that are around us. We saw that, then we saw what he did with that empathy. It led him to prayer. And that was, that was all last week. We looked through that prayer. We talked about if we don't set aside time to pray, let's just be real, we're not going to. If we don't set aside a time aside to pray, we're never going to. If I have an extra hour in my day, I'm not going to be like, man, yeah, I'm going to pray right now. I have an hour. We don't do that. So we have to set aside time. The fullness of life uh, uh, and, uh, that has been promised to you in a relationship with Jesus will not be fully experienced with God if you don't actually have a relationship with him through prayer. Now, in chapter 1, um, so what we see is that quality time spent with the Lord. And when we talk about prayer, I just one more quick thing on that. This isn't about some moral code where we're being forced to pray and we're going we're gonna to buckle down and we're going to pray for goodness sakes. It, it's, it's an opportunity to have a deep, vibrant relationship with God, and if you choose to ignore that, that's on you. You don't have to white-knuckle it. It's not a, a, a moral code that if you don't pray, you're going to... No, it's nothing like that. But the fullness of the relationship isn't going to be there. These are kind of baseline things of the Christian faith, building blocks, if you will, for for um, what it means to follow Jesus. And today we'll move into another one of those building blocks. So if you want to grab Bibles, turn to Nehemiah 2. Turn to Nehemiah 2, page 383. And I don't have my clicker. Matthew, if you can help me out. Um, Page 383 in those hardback black Bibles, if you have uh, one of those. Um, If you don't have one, uh, or don't have a Bible at home, please take that. That is our gift to you. Um, uh, take that home with you. But hopefully uh, this, this area in our Bible, Nehemiah, um, is, is becoming more, more familiar. And just so you know, 
as you're looking for it, uh, this is a safe place, and this will be a safe place to use the table of contents to find Nehemiah. That is okay. Don't feel bad for that, because I know it's a kind of a weird, weird spot. Again, Matthew, can you go on to that next slide for me of, of page 383, just so we know where that's at? Thanks, man. Um, none, just to be clear, none of us are better than the other because we can sing the, bo the books of the Bible song that we learned in, in, uh, in Sunday school just to find Nehemiah. We're like, and we found Nehemiah. Just open the table of contents, totally okay. Uh, no shame in that. So quick catch up, okay? Nehemiah is a Hebrew man, Israelite, Jewish man, Hebrew man, living in Persia. Remember, um, they, the, the, the Israelites were, were taken into exile, conquered by Babylon, taken out because of their sinfulness, and now Babylon's been conquered by Persia, and so they're living in Persia, living in the, the land of Persia, modern-day Iran, if you want kind of a, a visual for that. But he's still living in um, in, in Persia, and he'd risen up to a role that definitely had its perks, but was incredibly uh, vulnerable and disposable. Um, he was the king's cupbearer. Cup Again, we talked about it. It's a nice gig until it's not, right? Until someone tries to kill the king, and then you, you're laying on the ground with foam out your mouth. It's a good gig until it's not. You get the finest wine, finest food, um, uh, uh, unless you don't. Um, but he heard that the people of Israel, the, the, the Hebrew people, they'd been returning to the land over, over the last several, several decades, and uh, had rebuilt the temple, the dwelling place of God where, they, where the worship was taking place. It was incredible. They'd rebuilt the temple. It's beautiful. But through all those years, we're looking at about 90 years since they first came in, um, the, the, the walls and gates have been neglected and are still in rubble. So they built up this beautiful temple, and then the walls and gates all around are still, still in complete rubble. And remember, in ancient cities, walls were about defense. Don't, don't take building a wall correlation to today into this context all this time ago. Do not take that. Because when, when we hear build a wall, we're like, yeah, build it. Or, or no, don't. Like, it's not, it's not a, about keeping immigrants out of the United States. Like, that's not what the walls are talking about. It's a defense system. So please don't make that correlation there as we talk about building the, the walls or Nehemiah's building walls. But the gates were built into the walls um, and if, I'm sure you can visualize, I'll show you here in a second, but gates were built into the walls, and this is where prophets, judges, and kings would live as well as they would congregate, and um, the, the gates were the justice system was, was managed and, and handled, and markets would, would develop around there, and social events would take place, and it's this, this beautiful, the, the gates were incredible part of the walls, and so the fact, that <clears throat> the fact that they were in ruins meant that there was no justice system or vibrant social life in the city. And in case you're thinking, gate, just thinking of like a small door at a gate, let me give you a visual. There, were, there was and is today multiple gates in the entrances to this, the old city of Jerusalem. If you go over there right now, there is an old city walls, and then there's multiple gates that are around there that we see referenced in, in the Bible. So they're still there today. Um, but one that is most well known is called the Damascus Gate. And you can throw that photo up there for me. This is the Damascus Gate. And this is probably the least busy that we saw it when we were over there, okay? Um, I, normally, it is packed through, throughout here, but this is a 500-year-old gate. So it doesn't date all the way back to Nehemiah, obviously, but it's a 500-year-old gate still standing today. Um, now, I want you to take a guess at what is right inside that gate. Any guesses at what's right inside there? One of the busiest marketplaces in the old city. So the correlation that we see, the things happening all the way back then are still happening today. If you were to go there right now, as soon as you walk, walk in through here, turn left, because you can't just go straight through. They create like a, a system there, so you can't just rush, rush in. But go in and turn, 
It is shoulder to shoulder in the Muslim quarter of, of the old city because it's split up into four quarters and there's the Muslim quarter. You walk in there, you're shoulder to shoulder with markets everywhere. You may not remember this. A few years ago, um, when Aaron and I and, and, and several others went over to Israel in 2018, we filmed a series over there called Tears. If you want to see those videos, I'm sure we could find those for you. But we actually filmed a scene right in the middle of that marketplace. Now, we had to, Aaron, Aaron if, if you know Aaron, he tends to be like a puppy and his, his attention's all over the place. And so you had to, I had to, we had to work on focus. We had to work on focus because there was a teleprompter right here and there's just mayhem all around. He had to stay focused and read the teleprompter as we were trying to film this. And um, a funny story, at one point we had, um, we had armed guards actually walking down, um, you know, it's Israeli police, they walk with guns in hand, like it's, it's Jerusalem, that's what it is. Um, and uh, I'm filming with, with the gimbal, and I'm looking back on me, and they're coming towards us, and I'm like, uh, this is not going to go well, I'm not looking forward to getting busted, because sometimes you just can't shoot places and they want you to, to get out. Um, and so we were, we were there, and, and they ended up just passing by, but I watched Aaron, and he stayed focused, so we, we learned our lesson, I was proud of him. Um, and then you can actually see them walk by in the background of the video, so it's, it's kind of funny. But um, yeah, there's a huge marketplace right inside this wall. The gates and walls, as they are today even, deeply, deeply, deeply important to the protection and social fabric of the city. And when Nehemiah heard that they had not been prioritized, the gates and the walls, and rebuilt, he was broken, he mourned, he wept, he fasted, he was moved by compassion and empathy, and he knew what he had to do. So, as we talked about at the end of the service last week, he prayed, and it says there uh, that, that he, he wept for some, or mourned for some days. He was kind of in the space. We learned that's four months from the moment he heard about it to the moment we're about to read about the first part of chapter 2. It's four months. I want you to read with me chapter 2, verse 1 through 5, with this in mind. In the month of Nisan, um, again, uh, nice, and this is uh, the, the, the um, Hebrew calendar, not the Gregorian calendar we're on. In the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and I gave it to the king. Not been, I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever kind of sucking up there it seems like why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins its gates have been destroyed by fire the king said to me what is it you want then i prayed to the god of heaven verse five which kind of kind of cool little thing there i prayed to the god of heaven just kind of a little like not setting aside this big chunk to pray but just kind of like hey <laughs> I'm just, I know I need you here, Lord. And so he's just throwing out a little quick prayer. And then verse, verse 5, I answer the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah, again, southern kingdom of Israel, where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Okay, now when I read this, primarily uh, kind of verse 2 and 3. We'll, we'll stop there. When, when I read this, um, I think of this guy. <clears throat> go, go throw that photo up for me. This is who I think of. Do you know this guy? Some, some of you do. Um, this is, uh, I, I, what, what I imagine is Nehemiah sitting there, is sad, and the king notices it, and it throws off his groove. 
They're like Emperor's New Groove. You, you getting the reference? Yep. This, this guy, this old man, bumped into the Emperor in the Emperor's New Groove. Um, he threw off his, his groove, the, the rhythm in which he lives his life, his pattern of behavior. He threw it off. The groove. Beware of the groove. You know, you, you know the scene? The fact that Nehemiah's sadness was noticeable was a problem. Think about it from Artaxerxes' perspective. Of all the people in that room to have a strange disposition about them, probably not the guy that's trying your food that you want, want to have that, right? But Nehemiah went to the king, the most powerful man of the Lord. You can throw it to a blank slide for me because this guy, yeah, thank you. This is a little distracting. Nehemiah went to the king, the most powerful man in the world at the time, and he went, he went with a boldness that really can only come from a deep relationship with God that's facilitated through prayer, yes, and from believing the promise that God had said that if they would turn their faces back to him, he would reestablish the city. A, a, a trust in the promises of God undergirded his request. And this is how the king responds. Look at verse 6. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you be back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. Verse 7, I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so they will provide a safe conduct up, uh, until I arrive in Judah. And, and, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, that he will give me the timber to make beams for the, the gates of the citadel by the temple for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my request. So I went to the governor of the trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. You, you read this and it reads like you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. It's like, okay, since I'm going, can you give me all these permits to get everything that I need? Hey, why don't you just pay for it, King? Thank you for all, all of this. And just like God was, uh, had his hand on Cyrus and worked on Cyrus's heart, uh, you know, the king of Persia at the time, at the beginning of Ezra, when they first were coming back, just like God worked on his heart, when Zerubbabel, who went back to the rebel to rebuild the temple, that, that guy, um, just like God did with Cyrus, he moved in the heart of Artaxerxes here. And Nehemiah recognized, this is what I love, Nehemiah recognized that it was not because of his ability. It, 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 he made it clear that it wasn't because he was so great and charismatic and talented. Nehemiah, this, this guy, he makes it clear in verse 8. Go ahead and put that up there for me. Verse 8, because of the gracious hand of my God was on me. The king granted my request. Not of any volition of, uh, not, not me. As I read this, I think, may we today continually fight the urge to believe that it's because of anything we have done or earned. Fight the urge to think that we're so awesome and that, you know, when somebody comes up to you, you're like, hey, man, thank you. The Lord, Lord really used you today. You're like, oh, thanks. <laughs> it, he's so lucky. that get, No, he, he didn't do that. We fight the urge to believe that it's because any other reason than God being faithful to his promises that God chooses to act in this moment. It's not us, it's God and his faithfulness. And Nehemiah sees that, and I think it's beautiful. So what we're seeing here in Nehemiah is, is kind of a natural trajectory, jump us back to natural trajectory of, of maturity for a follower of Jesus. We have, we have new birth. It leads to compassion for your brothers and sisters. It, it, it leads to a habit of, of relationship building through prayer that's rooted in the Word of God. If you, if you go back and read that, he's got the, the Scriptures all over his prayer. He's praying God's words back to him. It's this beautiful thing, but he doesn't stop 
there. We're going to read this next chunk, and it's a, it's a bigger chunk, but it's important. So look at verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a, uh, with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put on my heart and to do in Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. Verse 13, by night I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate. Probably, dung gate, probably not a place you want to be. Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved toward the fountain gate and the king's pool, and there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews, the priests or nobles or officials or any others who was going to do the work or who would be doing the work. Verse 17, this is key. Then I said to him, you see the trouble we're in? Jerusalem lies and ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God is on me, what the king had said to me, and they replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. Again, new birth leads to compassion for one another leads to uh, a relationship built upon prayer and the Word of God. Um, meaning we aren't, um, but it doesn't stop there, meaning that we aren't just people that feel compassion or empathy and pray, but we are people that act upon the prayers out of the confidence in our, who our God is. This is the trajectory of maturity for followers of Jesus. I mean, it's not about age or tenure. You can, be, you can be as old, you can be as young, and you can do follow the same steps of maturity. Maturity isn't based on wisdom. It's based on, or it, 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 maturity is based on wisdom, which is knowledge that leads to action. And this process, it's called very church word, it's called discipleship. Now, I want to shift gears a little bit. How do I do this? How do I do this? Um, I want to bring this in today. The foundation um, of, of all discipleship is not gathering in a room like this. But discipleship toward maturity is developed in smaller rooms than this. Why? Because you can hide in bigger rooms. We may not have a ton of people in here, but you can sneak in and sneak out just fine. It's harder to do that in smaller rooms. It is a baseline of, of maturity is being known and knowing others. Spiritual maturity, that is. We say around here, we say, we say this statement. We say that life is better connected, right? And I want to caution us here because we can't allow this statement that is one of our, our core values as a church. You see them on the, in the hallway if you go towards the offices. I don't want this, this, this cannot become a catch-all, a drunk drawer statement for us, meaning um, uh, that... Here's what I mean. You may say, yes, I, I, I believe that too. I believe that life is better connected. That's why I go to small group. That's why I go to equip classes. That's why I do all these different things. Hear me, and you know this to be true. You can be in small groups and not experience connectedness. You can be just as distant and hide in small group like you do in here. We know this. Our, our culture knows this. We're kind of built this way. By and large, if I could describe uh, this, this part of our culture, we are, excuse me, we are a back porch private fence culture. 
Shelter me from others and give me my privacy. I don't, I don't even want to see them. Build, build them super tall. Thank you. That's perfectly fine in some instances. You may have weird neighbors. I get it. But where this type of idea, this back porch, private fence culture, leaks into our gospel communities here, where this leaks into a church gathering, where, where this is a, a mainstay in American culture, and where that does not take a back seat to following Jesus, we get into issues. This is where you can, you, you can now withhold being known by others. You can withhold being honest and continue to live disconnected. We see this, uh, another, another factor of this is in, is in our social media. I want you to say this with me. I do not have 400 friends. Can you say that? I do not have 400 friends. It's not possible, okay? You can barely keep up with your, your spouse or your friends, like you, or your close friends. You, there's no way you can have 400 friends. And we, we, know, we know this to be true, and that's why... There, uh, of those, like, maybe you have 1,500 friends. Maybe you're super cool. 1,500 friends. Those pop-up encouragements or, um, you know, uh, congratulations, they, they ring empty, don't they? Why? Because those people aren't in the mud with us. They're not in the hard stuff day in and day out. And so that random Facebook friend, they'll be like, hey, congratulations on the new baby, will always ring hollow next to the person that was in the hospital with you, in the waiting room, prayed with you through years of infertility, wept with you in your losses. This is life on life. This is messy. This is connected life, though. And if we believe this distance, even in this room, is what friendship is, It's no wonder we feel and stay disconnected and don't have genuine relationships. And what we end up doing is we move from place to place, from church gathering to church gathering, because it's no longer serving us, and so we're just going to move on. And when this arm's length kind of living, if you will, happens, you have yet to truly experience that life is better connected. You haven't taken in this value. And if you go to a group or any sort of gospel community, like any sort of gathering with other followers of Jesus, with the mindset that what can this offer me? How can this serve me? It's unlikely that you're going to find that life is better connected. Because being connected to one another requires vulnerability. requires being known. The baseline of community, if you're going to involve yourself in any sort of uh, community living with, with other followers of Jesus, the baseline is this. It's Romans 3.23. Let's go ahead and put it up there for me. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the baseline of community. It means that we don't have to pretend. You, we don't have to pretend that we're more than we are because the gospel makes it painfully clear that you're less than you think you are. And why would we try to pretend like we have not fallen short when, again, the Scripture makes it painfully clear that you have fallen short? So I don't have to get up here as a pastor. I don't have to get up here and teach and strut around like I got it all together when, when when God's been pretty clear that I'm a mess. And when we recognize this, the playing field is even and we can begin to experience the fullness of life that God offers us through God's people. And with boldness, we can uh, walk into smaller rooms and be honest. 
Now, I say this truly because I love you. There are many that go here and by your own volition do not belong here. And you rob only you of what Christ has for you. Some of you go here because you like the music. Some of you go here because you, maybe you like the teaching. Maybe you just go here because it's just what you do. But those things will not sustain you when it hits the fan. What you will need are people that know you and you know them. I mean, how much easier is it to have empathy when the hurt and the pain isn't a random person on Facebook posting just a thing out there in the ether, but it's here, day in and day out. When their kid runs away from the Lord, it breaks your heart. When, they're, when if you're younger and, and, and your friend's parents separate, you feel that with them. This leads you to pray. It leads you to searching the scriptures on their behalf. And if you're disconnected and detached, all you know is, all you know is big gatherings like this or um, a small gathering that you keep at arm's length because you don't want to let people in or get close. This is, this is an impotent version of Christianity that we've created in our heads that would not sustain anyone. It's not going to sustain you. The church, the gathering that Jesus gave his life for is a life-on-life, -life, messy, sanctifying walk that you're taking with other people. Other sinners, I'll add. Now, why am I going through this? All this life is better connected stuff. What I'll tell you is when I know and I am known by others, and out of that compassion and empathy and com am compelled to pray and believe the word of God for those I love and for myself, that will almost always lead me to action. Let me, let me give an example. Um, I feel like I've been pretty, pretty transparent with you guys over the last several months. Um, I've had a lot of moments, guys, where I did not want to step into what I believe God was calling me to step into for us as a church in this season. I did not and still do not feel qualified for what's been set before me. I don't feel like I have to put on a facade for all you guys. So there's been times that I've wanted to give up and walk away. There, there's been times I've wanted to not, I, I don't want to have the hard conversations. I, I, I don't want to bite my tongue when I'm getting accused. And I look at it and say, why, I, I didn't ask for this. Why, why is this happening to me? But church, time and time again, when the waves have been getting big um, and the noise is getting loud, and for me, stress comes out and canker sores in my mouth, and my mouth's full of canker sores. When that's the, what's happening, I've gotten an email. I've gotten a letter. I've gotten a text. I've gotten a call from someone in this family that says, hey, I'm glad you're here. I'm praying for you. I love you. I believe God is using you in this church and in the lives of people. Now, what happens in those moments? Is those people that, that do that, they, they did not, by a prompting of the Holy Spirit, say, God, please send someone to go encourage Jeremy today. Please send someone to encourage him. Let someone go and tell him that you love him and, and you hear him. Would you send someone? I don't know who, but you just send someone, Lord. And I think the Lord's like, hey, hey man, there's a reason I'm putting him on your heart right now. 
I shouldn't have to, you're going to lunch with him. I shouldn't have to put all these pieces together for you at this point. When we feel that, we're moved with compassion to action. What I'll tell you also is that if you've been following Jesus for a while and are not walking with people deeply in any sort of tangible way, that is a spiritual developmental issue. And you shouldn't be surprised that you struggle with sin like you do. You're not walking with God like you should or, or feel distant. You, you, maybe you don't know the scriptures like you feel like you should. I would suggest that God does much of his work in and through his people. And we're missing sanctifying discipleship opportunities by keeping things at arm's length. This is what we mean when we say that life is better connected. If you're not genuinely connecting with people, then your life won't be better in a small group. Again, the baseline of community and connectedness is this first. It should, should, this should be all we need. That all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God so we don't have to act and pretend like we've got it together. I thought you would, be more, you would be surprised at how much more people are encouraged and motivated through your weakness than your strength. We all like to make things part of our identity that aren't reality. Like we, we like to be the super mom or the super dad or we're the super single person that don't need no man or woman. Like we like to think we're that person. But when we actually step into who we are, I think suddenly our, maybe our small group, maybe our gathering, maybe our local group of friends has a real shot at empathy and compassion because there's no reason to have empathy and compassion when everyone is awesome. And from there we move toward action. Now, I believe Nehemiah understood this type of community and connectedness was necessary. He was a man of action who saw that there was a mess and, and knew it had to stop. And so what he does is what we just read. He calls these church, these uh, or, or I guess community influencers and leaders in Jerusalem. Um, and and he, he says, you know, I'm not going to be able to build this myself. So he comes in verse 17. Go ahead and put this, this up there for me. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Do you notice something about this? Go ahead and put the, put the next one up there for me. You see the trouble we are in. Come, let us rebuild so we're no longer in disgrace. He's not keeping everyone at arm's length. He's not coming in and pointing fingers that you need to fix this and make this more comfortable. He, he's saying that if you want to see change here, if you want to rebuild, it's going to take all of us. And family, this, this is us as a church. What I'll tell you is if it's your first inclination over the last several months to come in at any, or at any point, honestly, and point fingers and just say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is out of order, we need this ministry, we need to fix this, attendance down, things are going south. I, please expect me to come back to you and say, what are you going to do about it? Because I don't know. <laughs> and for some, the response to that question is a leap. But for the rest of us that want to be a part of the solution, a part of the rebuilding, a part of what God is going to do in and through this gathering we call New Story, it's time to get our hands dirty. A part of what God is going to do in and through this gathering, we have to get our hands dirty to be a part of that. 
You're not too old. You're not too young. You're not too immature. And hear me, you're not too mature to be a part of this. You're not above it. When Jesus gave his mandate to build his church, he did not make exceptions because all of us are necessary. You are an integral part of this family. If you're an owner here, especially integral part of this family, if you're breathing, you still have a purpose. And I can promise you, it's not to point out problems with no solutions. Your purpose is to say this, come, hand me another brick, let us rebuild. As you invite your coworker, you lay down one brick and you grab for another. When you are serving in a new area, you lay down one brick and you reach for another. When you join that small group, you lay one brick down, you reach for another. When you tithe, when you grow in empathy, when you study the scriptures on your own, develop that habit, it's a beautiful thing, you lay a brick down and you grab for another. When you serve in the community, when you reach across the fence and talk to your neighbor, when you choose to worship through the hurt and the pain that you feel, when you, when you decide to get counseling and the healing that you deserve, when you mend that relationship, you are building the church and continuing what God has called us to in making disciples. And when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, we should reject the culture's attitude of retirement and the mantra of the church should be, hand me another brick. So I ask, do we believe God is done with us? Do we believe God is still doing something through us? Because what I'll tell you is this. You can't expect change if you're not willing to be a part of it. You cannot be part of building and rebuilding his church by sitting idly by. We will not move through this season if you choose to sit on the sideline and wait for things to get back to normal, whatever that may mean. We have to follow Nehemiah's example. He heard of a need and was moved to action. And what we see in chapter 3, we're not going to read it because I'll look like a fool trying to pronounce all these names. You guys might like that, apparently. In chapter 3, there's 32 verses of names of people that were motivated by Nehemiah who didn't come in and point fingers saying, you got to get your act together, people. we got to get this fixed. No, they're motivated by him coming in and saying, man, I'm a part of this too. This is going to take all of us. Let's go. Here's what I'll tell you. If this is the reality in this place, if this is the mentality we have coming in this place, if we as a family choose to make this space a place that welcomes people and worships God, it, it basically does not matter how well the worship team does. It does not matter how well I, I teach because the gates of hell can't stop a church like that. So today, if Nehemiah was keeping a record at News Story, would your name be on that list? It's not about recognition in the spotlight, like, oh, my name's that. No, that's not, that's not it. But it's a list of people that chose to pick up a brick and rebuild. Take responsibility for the task ahead. And now as we look at what's ahead of us, I want to be clear about something. I don't believe we're in rubble here. And if the almost dozen ownership decisions in the last couple months haven't shown you that, if a unanimous decision on the Constitution doesn't show you that we're not in rubble here. Aaron set us up very well. But when somebody that is that deeply connected into this family steps away, there are pieces left behind. And that's where we're at. So I'll finish by asking again, do we believe God is done with us? 
Or do we believe God is still doing something through us? This isn't a social club. You know that? We don't come here just to hang out. You got better things to do with your time. Go tailgate pregame before before the, the Chiefs game at noon. This isn't a social club. This is a movement of God, the church. And we have to take ownership of the mission we're tasked with. And if that's you, then say, hand me another brick and keep building this church. Because we can't expect change if we're not willing to be a part of it. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you choose to use us. You don't need us. You will accomplish your purposes. You make that incredibly clear. You do not need us for anything, but you choose to use us for your honor, for your glory. And I pray our hearts would adopt the way of Nehemiah that says, this, this, isn't, this isn't your fault. This isn't your fault. I'm not going to blame shift. I'm going to take ownership. I know I had a part in this, and so we need to now work together towards rebuilding. May that be our heart for this church today. You know, so much of our, our, our culture, Lord, we, we, look, we look at the problems. That is what is all over our timelines. That is what is in our, our news sources, our, our, all of it. it, it it's everywhere. It's, it's nothing but negativity. It's nothing but evil. That's what's highlighted. And I pray that we become a people that now begins to focus on the positive, focus on the good things that you're doing, even here in and through this church. We're sinners leading sinners, sinners working together with other sinners. There's going to be broken pieces. There's going to be a hardship. But man, <laughs> impress on us to, to lean into one another. Because none of this is going to be accomplished alone. We need one another. And may we be reminded of that daily. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.